Well, I don't think I have to tell you much more than we live in a day and age when knowing what is true and not true, even if we see it with our eyes, even if we hear it with our own ears, is not necessarily a given, is it? (laughs) Digital technology has gotten to the point where facial recognition Facial movements, voice imprinting, modulation can mimic perfectly and reproduce deep fakes so that even with the eye, it's almost impossible to tell. Our generation has more information at our fingertips than any other generation before, but how much of it is true, how much of it is real, let alone unbiased, Some of the stuff that we read, that we watch, we hear, people are are simply regurgitating or telling these things over, unintentionally sharing without actually checking the facts. But I'm sure you'd agree with me that the internet is just full of intentionally false information. Fake websites, fake experts... (laughs) fake reviews, fake stories, fake videos, and and with all of that, reinforced by fake metrics designed to sell us these lies and these half-truths. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, in a recent season of America's Got Talent, two guys came together from different parts of the world and formed something called Metaphysics, the the group they call themselves, and and they they use what they call here literally artificial intelligence to create hyper-real content. Basically, what they did was they had one of the judges appear to be standing before the judges singing in real time. Now, the technology is not perfect, but it's getting there. When it comes to the things we see, the things we read, the things we hear, how much of that information can actually be trusted? How much is historically accurate? Ultimately, it comes down to a question of source, doesn't it? And as Christians, this question of source has always been an important one for us. But I would contend that in a world that is intentionally trying to set out these fake realities, misinformation and uh, deception, it becomes even more important. What is true? Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago, and we have a unique dependence on the eyewitness of the apostles. How can we be sure that what we know about Jesus Christ is true and reliable? Our job isn't like the apostles. We can't replicate what happened to them. They had a unique role in history, right? Our task is to know their testimony and to trust it. We're called to examine and decide what we read in the Word of God and ask ourselves, is it reasonable? Is it sensible? Because here's the thing, how we live out our lives of faith, how we choose to function as a church, the spiritual truths that we stand for, they shouldn't be determined by the denomination we belong to, by the theological matrix that we use, even though these may be good and useful things at times. 
what we stand for, what we believe, what we proclaim shouldn't simply be either interpretation of a spiritual truth as if we somehow have the perfect ability to discern God's will. And finally, it shouldn't just be a subjective reality. This Holy Spirit told me this, and it's not necessarily based on, on anything scriptural. We need to stand in a world full of deception and lies and fakery on the testimony of the Word of God as recorded by the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now this week we're starting a five-week series in the epistle or fancy word of saying a letter in the letter 1 John. We're going to answer that question. What does it mean to know Jesus and to follow Him? Now, as we start looking at these verses this morning, I want to put them into two broad categories. This is kind of the frame or the outline of where I'm going this morning. So if you get lost in the middle of it, you can kind of put your hat back on and and know where we are. So the first question is, what exactly did the Apostle John know, and, and how did he know it? Well, what he knew simply was the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He he knew Jesus personally. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was the beloved uh, beloved disciple. Now, a couple weeks ago when Queen Elizabeth II died, thousands of people stood in line for 14 hours just to be able to see her lie in state. Tens of thousands more stood along the, the motorcade, the motorway, trying to get a glimpse of the hearse. Now, many of those actually just wanted to pay their respects, but one lady at least, and I think she's representative of many, her comment was, I wanted to be here to witness history unfolding. Now, Queen Elizabeth's passing is important to Great Britain, but I think you'd agree it pales in comparison to the most important event in all of history the incarnation. And what's amazing is that John was an eyewitness to all this. He actually saw all of this unfolding. He was a part of it. So let's start here this morning with the basic, simple fact. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. The apostle John was there. His is a first-hand account of the greatest event that has ever happened in the history of the universe. How God became flesh, lived amongst us a sinless life, died on the cross, and then was raised from the dead. There is only one God, and we were created in His image. But because of sin, we have been separated from God. And so our natural desire now is to follow our own corrupt ways, to follow our own desires. But when Christ died on the cross, he took upon himself the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God that was rightfully ours for our sin. He stood in our place, or better said, he hung in our place before a holy God and answered for our sins. Now, in in raising Christ from the dead, God has received the life of Christ 
as a sacrifice on our behalf for our sins. And because of that, we now have the forgiveness of sins, and we are redeemed from the curse of sin. So what exactly did the Apostle John know about Jesus? Well, first he says he was from the beginning, meaning that there was never a time that Jesus did not exist. He existed pre-everything. In verse 2, he goes on to say that he was with the Father, meaning that he shares in that eternal existence of the Heavenly Father. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. Now, when we read those phrases, it should bring us back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, right? And rightfully so. How does John open up the Gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It can never be said of Jesus Christ that He was created like anything in this universe. He is what theologians would say is self-existent. He has in Himself all life, all existence. He's not dependent upon anything outside of Himself. And it's always been that way because He shares perfectly in the very character and the nature of the Godhead. Verse 3 goes on to say that He's God's Son. But we need to understand that it, it can't be in the same way that we are sons and daughters of the Father, right? His sonship is from eternity. Ours is adopted. There was never a time that He didn't exist when He was not created. But there is a time when we did not exist, when we had not yet been created. And so that means that Christ's sonship is qualitatively different than ours. It's a different kind of sonship. So these truths about who Jesus is and claims to be and recorded in the Word of God, they, they seem basic to us, obvious. And you're probably saying, well, Pastor, why are you going over these things? Anyone who is born again of the, of the kingdom of God, by the Spirit of God, knows then and now these are basic truths. The problem, however, is that in the early church, just like now, there was false teachings. And that's the very reason why John's writing this letter. He's looking out at the fledgling churches as they're growing, as they're expanding, as they're sharing the gospel, and he's saying, I need to reinforce what they need to know to live for God. Now, one of the things that he was writing against was a heresy called Arianism. Now, it has nothing to do with Nazis. It was named after somebody called Arius. But Arianism basically says that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Or there was a time when he was adopted. You know, when the, the Spirit came down like a dove on him, they would say that is the adoption of Jesus as the Son of God. Or they could say that he in some way doesn't share fully in that very character and nature of God. Now, do these exist today? Yeah, these are at the very heart of the cults, like the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons. But you know what? We can hear it in our modern-day churches as well. 
when we fall into the error of elevating human reason above Scripture and say things like, well, the virgin birth is not necessarily really true and it doesn't matter. Or Jesus didn't really die. Or even if he did, he was never really raised from the dead. That is denying the fullness of the character and the nature of Christ. Now, why is this all important? It's important because if Jesus is just another created being and not God, if he was not born of the virgin, if he did not live a sinless life, if he did not die on the cross, and if he, did not, if he was never raised from the dead, everything that we hope in has been a deep fake lie for centuries. Without Christ, there is no answer to the problem of sin. Without Christ, Christianity is foolish. Without Christ, we are people most deserving of being pitied because our hope is false. So how did John know about these truths? How did he know these things about Christ? Well, in verses 2 and 3, he actually uses three verbs repeatedly. He says, we heard, we saw, we touched. What John's saying is that we, that is the apostles, are living testimonies to the incarnation. And as I'm going to say in just a moment, and I hope demonstrate to you, more important than the, dem than the incarnation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For three years, they were with Christ. They ate with him. They walked with him through the dry countryside. They saw him perform miracles that only the power of God can do. They heard him teach and preach of the kingdom of God like no one else before him. There was a power and authority and a simplicity about what he taught. But it wasn't simply before he died, was it? Because after he was raised from the dead... He was with them for 40 days before he miraculously ascended unto the Heavenly Father. Now, as the resurrected Lord, they heard him. They touched him. Remember Jesus when he's talking to Thomas, put your hand in my side, touch me. And they saw him. And here is something I think that's important we need to understand. Remember the story in, uh, sorry, the narrative of John chapter 20 of the morning of the resurrection. Mary is the first one to go out to the, the grave and there she finds the, the, the tomb, the, uh, the stone rolled away. And, and so she runs back to the disciples and tells them the, the news. Well, then we hear or we see three different words being used by the apostle John to describe their seeing. When John first arrives, he looks, at, he looks inside. He doesn't go in. He looks inside. He sees the grave clothes. And it's the most common word in the original language. And it means simply he noticed. He looked inside, and one of the things that he saw was the grave clothes over there. But it didn't register. The next moment, the apostle Peter comes. And he, he pushes John aside, and he goes in. And we read that he saw the clothes. The word there is not simply to notice, but it's to scrutinize. 
to perceive, to ponder. He's looking at these clothes and he says, something's going on. I have no idea what it is. He's puzzled. And then John, not to be outdone, (laughs) goes in the tomb himself. And there again, he sees. Now, this word is different than the other ones. This is a word that means that he saw and he understood what had happened. John, the first time, he sees the clothes, but he he only perceives it blindly. But now as he sees the clothes again, he sees through the eyes of faith and he discerns that Christ has been resurrected. He needs nothing more than to see the neatly folded clothes. And he says, Christ has been risen from the grave. And, And here's the thing about remembering chapter 20 was the word to see here in 1 John that's used three times in these verses is the same one that he uses the morning of the resurrection. John uses that same word to say he saw and he perceived. And in the same way, the apostles saw and perceived. Now, it's true that they saw him physically before he died. They spent three years with him. But in seeing him resurrected, they also now became spiritually discerned. They understood fully for the first time, here's the Christ, the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, the Savior of mankind, the suffering servant who is now raised from the dead. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that that these verses are talking about when it says that the life was made manifest to us. John says our eyes were opened to the spiritual truth and we were able to discern that truth and to receive it as ours. And, And that's why he uses that same word to see from John chapter 20, which isn't the most common one. When the apostles saw the resurrected Christ, they heard him, they were able to touch him, God revealed to them the spiritual truth, and they discerned it as truth. Now, John's experience of being an eyewitness, it's not something we can duplicate, is it? None of us can ever say that we physically saw Jesus before he died or after he was raised from the dead again. We never touched him. We never heard him. There is no way that we could ever say that we could be like an apostle. But the spiritual experience of seeing and discerning is ours because it's based on the truth, the eternal truth, the revealed truth given to the apostles, and in this case, very specifically to the apostle John. It's God who reveals truth to us, and we discern it, and we receive it as our own. Now, John stresses that the apostles' unique physical and spiritual testimony here they, they saw Christ. They heard Christ. They touched him. In part, they want to count, uh, counter another heresy, a heresy said, that said that Jesus was never really fully human. He only appeared to be human. But John uses this word to see very explicitly, to demonstrate that not only must we fix our eyes upon Christ, we must discern the truth and that's the work of God that, that, that God does in us. 
That's important because, again, we, we can't replicate the apostles' physical reality. That was based on a, a special thing that God had done with them. But God can and does replicate the spiritual experience because it's based on the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of John's testimony, on the testimony of all of the apostles. So our task is not to duplicate, but our task is to know what that testimony is, to discern the spiritual truth, to receive it as ours, and then to trust in it. That is our responsibility. We're called to stand on the trustworthiness and the dependability of the apostles' account as it's recorded in the Word of God. It is historically true. It is spiritually true. Now, at this point, I, I think we need to ask ourselves a tough question. If the study of the testimony of the apostles as we have it recorded in the Bible is God's means that we may discern and we may affirm that truth, the truth claims that are there about Jesus Christ, the, the truth that brings us first to faith and the, the truth that actually continues to mature us in faith, how do we spend our time? How much time do I spend in the Word of God? And even if I do, how haphazardly do I do it? John says, this is the truth. This is a means of growing in your understanding. And as we're going to see in a minute, it's going to be the basis of everything else we see here. He says, if it is God's means that you would understand the truth and discern the truth and receive the truth by reading and standing on the truthfulness of what he's writing, how much time do we actually spend in the Word of God? It's a serious concern. Because we have all kinds of things that we can fill our time with. And we understand that the Word of God is important. We understand that it's important for our spiritual life. Paul is saying here, it is the fount of spiritual blessings. To know the truthfulness of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. The second aspect of John's opening words focuses on the sharing of truth. Specifically, he, again, he uses three different words here. He says, testify, proclaim, write down. Now, as we've seen in other places of the New Testament, this idea to testify has as its basic meaning a lawsuit bearing testimony legally before a judge. John is saying, I am an eyewitness of the events around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then the other word, to proclaim, in the context of this, this legal witness again, has the meaning to make a formal declaration of truth. Now, someone has to be a witness to something, before they can testify of that truth, right? It's only as they know the truth can they testify of it. As an apostle, John's calling and commissioning is unique to speak of what he saw and heard concerning Christ. But there's something important here. 
We, we have to catch this. He says, the commissioning, his special commissioning as an apostle wasn't his to keep for himself. It was the, for the good of others. It was for your good. It was for my good that our joy may be made complete. The apostle's unique privilege of knowing the resurrected Jesus Christ personally that the very reason why John was elected by God to be an apostle, to be a witness, was so that he could declare to us the truth of Jesus Christ through Scripture. He says, that's why I'm writing this down to you. These are the living words of life. In this way, the testimony of the apostles has come to us through the Word of God and becomes the very foundation of our faith even though we can't replicate what the apostles saw and heard and touched. Again, we can't testify to what the apostles saw, but by our testimony of grace, built on their proclamation, our lives illustrate the truthfulness of John's testimony, don't they? When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ based on the very words that, that have been inscripturated and put in the Word of God, he says, this is what happened. We illustrate the power of the gospel. The veracity of John's witness is confirmed by our experience of God. And here's the thing. It's given to us, just like John that we might proclaim the gospel to others. The, the truth of the gospel of Christ, recorded in Scripture, manifest and made alive in us, is so that we may have a joyful proclamation of the gospel to others around us. This, then, is how the gospel has come to us. And this is the way it must be passed on to those before, uh, ahead of us. The apostles bore witness to what they saw and what they heard from Jesus. They proclaimed it. And then it was preserved for us in the Bible so that all future generations could also see and touch and hear the truth, at least spiritually, receive it as truth, and then go forth and proclaim it. But why? <laughs> Seems like a lot of effort starting in eternity past, you know, written and included in every aspect of the Old Testament writings, focusing on the incarnation, the actual physical life of death of Jesus Christ, witnessed by the apostles, proclaimed by them as they lived, and then preserved by God in the New Testament writings. And why should we even be concerned to be a part of it? Well, John concludes his opening words in this letter by telling us exactly that, the reason why. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, so that our joy may be made complete. Two purpose statements. Remember, John's writing to an early church with believers who are being swayed by all of these false teachings. He wants them to remain in an orthodox teaching, in the right doctrine, 
And he wants them, because of that or through that, to remain in fellowship with him, with the Godhead, and with other believers. Fellowship, as we've seen weeks ago, is a shared experience of oneness. It's a partnership, an intimate sense of spiritual unity. For John here, it's a common participation in God's grace that all who have been saved, you and I, all of us who have been born again, we share this in common. So fellowship is a shared experience of knowing God because we're in a right relationship with God. A shared experience of being one with one another because each one of us is in right relation vertically with the Heavenly Father because we call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Now, let me just take a moment and and say something that it may clear up some fuzziness. If you're here this morning and you are not born again, you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may say to yourself, well, how can these people come together? They have... They have nothing in common, really. Maybe one or two of them are related, but there's really no commonality amongst them. How can they lovingly, sacrificially serve one another? Well, the truth is, we claim to be born again. And because of that, we share the same spiritual passions. There are different aspects of the world. I like hiking, I like bird watching, things like that. But we share the same spiritual passions. We share the same spiritual longings. We have the same purpose in life, and that is to glorify Christ. It's all centered on Jesus. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if if you are not saved, that kind of fellowship is going to elude you. You can't experience that same oneness with us because Jesus Christ is not at the center of your life. We're, I speak on behalf of the congregation. We're glad you're here if you don't know Jesus Christ. We're going to love you. We'll care for you. We'll vote for lunch with you. But what stirs your heart, what motivates your life, is ultimately different from us. And if you have a question before you leave this morning, about what that fellowship means and how can I have a right fellowship with God. Please grab me before you go. I don't care what other things I'm doing, and let's talk and pray. Here's the thing. Our name is Chinese Gospel Church, but it's not our common ethnicity that binds us together, is it? It's our saving faith in Jesus Christ. He is the key to our shared fellowship with God and with each other. We have a restored relationship with God, and because of that, a restored relationship spiritually with others. And it's only because we have fellowship with God. One is dependent upon the other, which should move us to examine our hearts this morning. Can we ever really, truly, honestly say that we have fellowship with God and yet we're out of fellowship with dear brothers and sisters in Christ in this church? To claim that we have 
an experience, a daily experience of the sense of the closeness of God, a oneness with God, and yet experience or, or have lagging hostility or animosity, resentment or jealousy towards somebody else in the congregation? No. If we're not experiencing fellowship with other believers, then we're not walking in the light of God's truth. What should characterize us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, is a desire for fellowship one with another because it flows naturally from that fellowship we have with our Heavenly Father, with all of those who have likewise been saved by faith, who recognize that we are sinners saved by grace. This then is the first purpose for sharing the truth about Jesus, that through their teachings, that is the, the, uh, the apostles, we might experience fellowship with them, with God, and with one another. The second purpose, John says, is that the reason why we're to share the gospel, the, the, the truth about Jesus, is that our joy will be made complete. Now that word, our, could also be yours. There's a bit of a, a contextual problem there, but it doesn't make any difference in the long run. If it's our joy, he's speaking from the position of an apostle. If he's speaking of your joy, he's referring to us. But in the end, here's the thing, if the fullness of the joy that the apostles experienced in Christ is the result of sharing the gospel and seeing others come to fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, and, and if we are like them to share the gospel that others may have fellowship with God, then their joy is our joy. You see how it doesn't make a hill of beans in the long run? Our joy is made complete as we share, proclaim, and teach Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected. The joy of our salvation is an ever-expanding reservoir of joy, and it only ever becomes complete as we share the gospel with others and we see them come to saving faith. We see them come to understand and, and bask in the joy and the grace of God that we're experiencing, to rejoice in the same grace and the same mercy that God has reached them. If our hearts are not seeking to rejoice in others coming to faith in Christ, we need to ask ourselves whether our heart is calloused whether we've become indifferent to the eternal destiny of those around us. How can we say that we know the truth about Jesus? How can we say that we have fellowship with God and not desire that others also know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? If you're struggling with this this morning, if you're struggling with an experience of fellowship in the body, if you're struggling with a sense of indifference towards others, I want to encourage you, there is one great way to start this process so that you are receiving and enjoying that fellowship. It's not having a coffee, it's prayer. Simple, it's prayer. Because when we pray, 
we vicariously take the needs of those around us and we carry them before the throne of God. We prayed for the missionaries this morning. We prayed for our church as a whole. And when we do that, we are carrying those burdens for the Lord. We are getting involved in their spiritual lives. So if you have never prayed for someone, or if you don't pray regularly, John's saying you can expect a lack of a sense of fellowship with God. Because you can't have fellowship with God without having fellowship and a desire for others as well. Which means that you'll never rejoice fully in the joy of your salvation. Because our joy is made complete as we share the gospel. Here is the one point that I want to really end with this morning. The takeaway. A true and accurate knowledge of Jesus is necessary for the foundation of our fellowship and the fullness of our faith. Now, I decided uh, early this morning, I was up around 4 o'clock trying to add some things and take away, uh, I decided I wasn't going to go with an illustration that might neatly package everything up with a bow and give you a wonderful illustration. Um, I decided I wanted to go back to that first question we asked. A question, and if studying the testimony of the apostles is God's means of discerning and affirming the truth, the truth claims about Jesus Christ, why don't we study the Bible more? Why don't we study it more earnestly? But here I want to tighten the screws. If you are a Christian, you have now fellowship with God. It is an objective truth. But your experience of that objective truth will be impeded. So the question is, what is your daily walk like? Are you rejoicing in an intimate fellowship with God? Are you experiencing fellowship with other brothers and sisters as you come in contact? And, and not simply talk about, you know, what's nice and going on in, in your life and then let's have a meal. I'm talking about spiritual things, the, the things deep down that, that you see God doing and no one else can do. If you desire to have a deeper sense of fellowship one with another, it's not connected to whether we have a coffee. It's connected to our desire to share the gospel, John says. If you want to grow in your joy, your experience, and we've all had this when we first come to faith in Christ, we're bubbling over, but with time, with responsibilities and other issues, then that kind of lags. If we want to experience on a daily basis the fullness of our joy, it's tied again, John says, to our teaching, our sharing, our preaching of Christ. Our fellowship, our joy, these two things are the product of sharing the gospel. The purposes for which sharing the gospel has been given. We have the gospel that we might have fellowship with God and with one another, as well that our joy may be made complete. And what is 
the fuel that fires all of this. It is the study of the Word of God and knowing what is true. As we grow in assurance of what is true, we grow in our boldness. We grow in our joy. We grow in our simple desire to speak about Jesus Christ. Think of it as a fire. My parents caught you. We have a wood stove. But think of a fire. What happens when you put a little bit of water on it, whether it's sin or whether it's simple neglect of your spiritual life? The fire goes out. The fuel of the fire, to put another log in, John is saying, is the study of the Word of God. And to experience that warmth, that closeness on a daily basis, you need to be continually in the Word of God all the time, rejoicing, receiving the truth, discerning what is true, and standing on it. Your fellowship, your joy, is the product of your desire to share Jesus Christ. And it's based, it's the fruit, and it's based upon the amount of truthfulness that you have discerned and received in your spiritual life. So here's the importance of the apostolic teaching. It is the foundation of truth that God has given us that we need on a daily basis to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with others, and to know the fullness of our joy.